3: you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio. Special Operations Military News and Straight Talk with the guys in the community.
1: Hello again everyone. Welcome back to Software Radio. You're on the air t- this afternoon with Steve Balistrieri. We have a great guest with us, Paul Bruno, uh, award-winning author. Uh, he's written a couple of books. He's written a couple of books about the probably the most iconic piece of American military equipment ever, which is the Army's Jeep. Well, the military's Jeep, not just the Army. Um his first book was uh, The First Jeep in 2014, and he's come up with a new one, The Original Jeeps, The Race to Build America's First Jeeps. It's now available on Amazon.com. So we're going to talk to Paul about his books. We're going to talk to him about the, the Jeeps, which if you're a fan of military history, you're going to enjoy this. Um, and you should check out the book as well. So without any further ado, Paul, welcome. To soft rep radio and thanks for taking the time this afternoon with us
4: oh glad to be here and thanks for having me
1: yeah and uh you know when uh when i got the email about this i was like oh man because i had just read something not too long ago um in re- relationship to the jeep and somebody had written an article in one of those military magazines and it just caught my eye i started reading it and they were saying if it wasn't for World War II, it might have, have never been built, and uh, it ended up. I mean, it's lasted what eighty years now, and it's now a part of American consumers. I mean, everybody has Jeeps now. That we have one in our front yard, as a matter of fact. So, uh, you know, it, the Jeep is a, it's a true iconic vehicle. Has passed the test of time.
4: Oh, that is absolutely correct, and uh, that's one of the reasons we came out with uh, the updated book uh, was to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the creation of the first three Jeeps, which are on the cover of the book. Uh, they were all built and uh, delivered to the Army in 1940, and you know, maybe you'll learn a little bit about the DNA of that Jeep sitting in your driveway because yeah. DNA <laughs> of every Jeep uh, is from these first three.
1: Yeah, it's amazing because. Um... You know, and then when you're reading about it, it's it's because yeah, like you said, it's out in the driveway. You you consider it a modern modern vehicle, but when you go back to the original, the army was trying to replace the mule as a, as a uh, you know uh, form of transport, and uh, that tells you how far back we we've come. It's so quickly. I mean, we were replacing mules with the jeep. And uh, I remember reading something uh, a long time ago. General uh, Dwight Eisenhower said after World War II, the Dakota, which was the transport aircraft, the landing craft that you you know you see the guys going uh, ashore like in D Day and the, the Marine Corps and their amphibious landing, and the Jeep were the three biggest things that won World War II for us.
4: He definitely said that. And General Marshall, the chief of staff, also credited the Jeep as like America's greatest contribution to modern warfare. So it's a amazing vehicle and testament to those who built the first three that 80 years later, it's still there and it's still here and still performing exceptionally well for what it does. It's great stuff.
1: So what possessed you um, to, to originally start researching this? Because I, I read somewhere that... You spent over 20 years researching the Jeeps and their history.
4: That is true. My journey with uh, early Jeep history, and that's my niche. I'm early Jeep history, once in the first couple of years, 1940, 41. And uh, uh, many, many people, excellent people have uh, documented the uh, Jeep after after the war started. But what uh, drew me into the story originally was uh, back in 1999, believe it or not, Um, I was uh, leading the exciting life that I do watching the History Channel. Oh, And uh, they had on the big rigs of combat, Jeeps. And they did this teaser before commercial break that said um, the first Jeep was created by a bankrupt car company in Butler, Pennsylvania in the incredibly short time of 49 days. And I was beginning to write screenplays at the time. And I said, that just sounds like a screenplay. And as I began to research Bantam's journey, I came to find out just how amazing their story was. They were bankrupt. They had no resources. Um, They were given this incredibly short time frame of 49 days, and they delivered the vehicle and exactly a half an hour to spare on the 49th day. And I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. So it really fit the screenplay form, and I worked for many years to uh, have that happen. It didn't happen. Uh, but then that just as I kept researching the story and researching the story, and then decided to write the books, and came into even more um, information, it came even more amazing of how the original Jeeps, the first three, came about. So that's that was the genesis for me. Was just this is you can't make this stuff up, and we'll probably get into more of that as the interview goes on. But that's just the beginning of it. You know, it just it that's just amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, when you think about it, th- this went from a concept to them putting something put together for the military to look at in 49 days. I don't think you could do that today.
4: Well, they didn't think they could do it back then because the betting odds against Bantam actually achieving that were five to one in Detroit. Cause it was a small <laughs> world. Well, it's still a small world in some sense, but the automotive world was pretty small back in those days. So people knew what was going on. So They were taking five-to-one odds even before Vegas was Vegas.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Vegas was just a a blip in the desert back then in 1940.
4: That's absolutely true.
1: So um, what's your background? I mean, I know you grew up in the Northeast. Yeah, I grew up
4: uh... in the Northeast, and uh, my background is I have – a bachelor's degree in management and a, a master's degree in marketing and, and then another bachelor's degree in computer software and then I went and got an MA in history so I kind of have a background both in business management and history always been a big history buff since I was a you know young person and uh, so what I did is I combined my and I worked in information technology for about 25 years still kind of do And I was a project manager for a good portion of that um, journey. And so the first book I wrote from a project management perspective and called it Project Management and History, uh, The First Jeeps. Then what happened is when I came up with the idea, you know, we ought to try to honor the 80th anniversary. And what we decided to do is go to my history side and really create a history book and then extend it to include the. Uh, the other two pilot models, as I mentioned, uh, the Willis Quad and the Ford Pygmy, in the book, and extend the book out from when we ended the first book in October of 1940, through uh, early 1941, February, March, and even up into May of 41, with some information we put in how uh, Willis uh, evolved the Quad into the Willis MA. So to kind of honor again, so it's much more. Uh, historic it's a history book um has a wider audience probably because we included willis and ford in it along with the and brc and uh, that's kind of uh the short version of my background and how the two books came about
1: awesome now you know uh you, you obviously got interested in this you started you know putting some stuff together talk to our listeners a little bit about how this all came about in like the background of, of, you know, the beginning of World War II of why the military was looking to do this.
4: That's a great question. And uh, so what happened is uh, the military through the 1930s, as the decade went on, they knew they needed to modernize, but um, there was this slight thing going on called the uh, Great Depression and there was no money. Then as the decade came to an end and Germany was rising up, the military realized they needed a vehicle and they did a lot of testing, especially in the infantry uh, in 38, 39, which is documented in the book. And they really didn't come up with anything. They had some ideas. So what happened is, uh, in 1940, Bantam was bankrupt. They hired a guy named Charles Payne to try to drum up some government business because the military end was starting to free up. At the same time, in May of 1940, and that's kind of when the Jeep procurement uh, project began, they had this meeting uh, up at Camp Holabird, Maryland, which was the primary vehicle procurement depot at the time. Of, I think it was the motor transport subcommittee and in May, about a couple of weeks after Hitler invaded the low countries and they had nothing on the drawing board, nothing. And they were trying to had to replace the mule and they knew that the motorcycle was sidecar really didn't have the cross con- country capabilities, the towing capabilities and the ability to mount uh, you know, a machine gun and other weapons. And they, and they, and it did have, and then they knew the half-ton truck wasn't uh, capable of what they're doing. So they had this meeting, and they basically have nothing. They have no idea. And this goes, you know, may hear this a few more times, Steve. Can't make this up. A gentleman in the infantry by the name of Colonel Oses at from the infantry at that meeting goes back to his office. Charles Payne is literally sitting in the window behind his desk from Bantam, and he says, "What do you, you know, walks in and says, who are you? And he. Charles Payne, and uh, introduce themselves the Bantam rep, and tells him he's looking for Major Howie, who was famous for the Howie machine gun character, and he's trying to interest the Army in a vehicle that Bantam, he says, Bantam can build it. And O'Seth Long, uh, short up the story says, Howie's not your guy. I'm the guy that knows everything the infantry could possibly want about vehicles, because he had been Fort Benning, at Fort Benning when they did all the testing in the late 30s that I mentioned. And that was the genesis of the project. This guy walks back from this meeting where they have nothing and pain is sitting as his window. And here they meet. in like this moment, like you just, again, really? And they began the process to de- develop a general characteristics with, which would kick off the Jeep uh, project, which again, the memo they came up with about the eight or nine characteristics was literally officially came out on June 6th, 1940, exactly four years before D-Day. So. That's kind of how the whole Jeep procurement began.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
4: It's, yeah, yeah, it's like, again, screenplay. It's like, <laughs> how did this happen? So <laughs> anyway, that, that, was the, that was the beginning of the Jeep procurement. And yeah, when I went out to the archives to try to find stuff, I could never find anything about the truck four by four light quarter ton before June 6, 1940. And I couldn't figure out why. But then as I researched the story and was able to find out more about it, I came to realize that was the first document that kicked off the Jeep procurement.
1: And it was just on a chance meeting between this colonel and obviously a marketing guy that they just met.
4: Yes. And that's a great term. Charles Payne was the ultimate marketing guy. And yes, exactly. He was Charles Payne. it spent a few, a number of months before that. Uh, Trying to you know go through the labyrinth of the military in Washington, and he just ends up at OSS office in infantry on that day when he comes back from the meeting at Camp Holabird. We're like, we don't have anything, and here we go. So, yeah, just incredible set of circumstances.
1: Now, uh, I'm under the—I don't know if I read this correctly. One of the articles I I, I wrote—I read—I didn't write it. I read about uh, the Jeep. Would the the designer put this on paper in like eighteen hours? That is
4: another one of those uh, stories. Yes. So after they came out with the June sixth memo, a uh, whole bunch of really good stories between of what the quartermaster did to develop a uh, a spec, uh, which was ES four seventy five and a concept drawing, and I actually got to hold that concept drawing from. Uh, 1940, in my hands, Uh, 08370-Z, if my memory's correct, and that's in the book, (laughs) and es 475 is in the book, so what the Army decided to do was Bantam was helping them develop these specs, and Bantam thought they were going to just get a negotiated contract, and off we go, and then we get another one of those twists in the story, the Army decides, and the quartermaster, you know, we're going to put this out to bid. So they sent it out to 135 companies and eventually forward bid. Bantam was completely off guard that they were going to have to do this bid. So they, they were bankrupt. They had nothing. So they had to call this guy up, Carl Probst. Again, and this whole, whole story is detailed in the book. He was an automotive designer from in, in Detroit. He literally, yes, exactly that. He drives to Butler, gets there on a Friday. Uh, and, yeah, he draws the concept drawing based upon what the military wanted in literally 18 hours. And they put their whole bid together on, uh, you know, over that weekend and then drove down to Baltimore on the on the uh, 21st. So that's actually a true story. And Propes is doing that is, is documented in the book. It's another one <laughs> of those. How does that happen?
1: It's <laughs> like, are you it, kidding does, me? it doesn't happen anymore like that. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It was just, again, it's just like,
4: it was just like this karma meant to be thing going on. So yeah, that's actually true.
1: Amazing. Now, when the, when the army put out, you know, they were going out to bid, they usually put some kind of proposal out there. This is what we're looking for. The specs. Uh, Do you have the original in the book? Do you, you talk about that, what they were looking for, what, what the vehicle was supposed to do?
4: Yeah, absolutely. In um, the appendix is uh, specification ES475 and all its a wonderful detail. And we also have Bannum's and Willis's response. I actually held Bannum's and Willis's response to that spec uh, in my hands, Bannum's bid proposal. And um, so, yes, that detail is in the book and the appendix if someone wants to read it. And it's really quite amazing what the Army was looking for. If I could tell you one other story, though. Uh, another bugaboo was the army came up with this requirement for the weight, and as a project manager, this is the kind of requirement you don't want to get, so they said, without asking anyone who would build them, anyone with any expertise on how much this thing would weigh based upon what they're looking for, they said, how much should it weigh? Oh, well, we're looking for something between the motorcycle and the sidecar, which weighs about 500 pounds, and we're looking for Uh, And then the half-ton truck at 2,000 pounds. So this thing magically needs to weigh 1,300 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, exactly. Shockingly, no one at that time could manufacture a vehicle for what they wanted anywhere near that. So Bantam basically decided, we're just going to ignore the man behind the curtain. We're just going to ignore that requirement. But no one told Carl Probst, so they filled out their bid document. They go to Baltimore the night before because uh, Camp Holabird was uh, located in Baltimore, and they're uh, July twenty first, nineteen forty. And they're going to open up the bids the next morning at July twenty second, or present their bids and be opened. And Charles Payne looks at the form and says, "You can't put in a weight of eighteen hundred pounds. They will reject you right out because you didn't check off the right checkbox." So they literally had to call a stenographer, retype all the forms up. And put in a new weight. And Carl Probst, 20 years later, is remembering, you know, we didn't want to look too close to 1,300 pounds. So we just decided to say, this thing's going to weigh 1,273 pounds. Thank you very much. Without any idea. Yeah. And then then, then the kicker to the story is I'm in the archives and I find Bannum's bid proposal. I'm holding this incredibly historic document in my hands, which is exceptionally humbling. And I look at the box for weight. And it says twelve hundred and seventy three pounds, and I know exactly where that number came from. And it just blew my mind. So yeah, that was that was Bannum's uh, you know way to do the weight. You know, let's just uh, yeah, twelve hundred seventy three sounds like a good number. We'll throw that in there. <laughs> See how that works. Out.
1: That's awesome. It's, yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's not right on the the limit there, but it's close enough to where the army's going to be real happy with that.
4: <laughs> exactly, Steve. Exactly
1: because <laughs> you know if it was right at 1300 the army would have found fault with it you know yeah, it because be like then
4: the price things at you know 1199 if they put it at 1299 they would have said there's got to be something going on here
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um yeah talk us through now now they um they approached you said a bunch of different car manufacturers how many actually put bids in
0: Oh, a-
4: excellent, uh, another excellent question. Only Ford showed up to the, only four, F-O-U-R, showed up to the bid uh, opening. Ford didn't propose because they said the 75, uh, the 49 day uh, time frame was impossible. A firm called Crosley uh, also bit, refused to bid for the same reason. Willis was there and had put together a time of materials bid and how they put their bid together is documented in the book, great story there. And, but they said they couldn't deliver in for 75 days. So, again, one of these moments, the major laws, the head of uh, the procurement for the army at Camp Holabird, walks out to the group and says, well, Willis has the low bid. Had <laughs> Bantam, like, representatives just turned white. Like, how can they have the whole bid? Then he says, after that, you know, after they have a heart attack. However, Willis says they can't build in 75 days and Bantam says they can build in. Uh, excuse me in 49 days and Bantam says they can so with the penalty Bantam has the uh, low bid and Bantam's going to get the contract to build the first pilot in the first 70. Of course Bantam had no idea if they could really do it in 49 days but they were bankrupt so it's 1,273 pounds and absolutely we can do it in 49 days <laughs> so that, that's how that happened.
1: That's amazing yeah. now yeah during this time you know, um, you know, going back to the history, we're talking the summer of 1940. This is the era of Blitzkrieg, where the Germans are going across. You know, they uh, did the Low Countries, they went across France, all this. And and as amazing as it sounds when we talk about Blitzkrieg or Lightning War, they were still a horse-drawn army for the most part, weren't they?
4: Actually, that's true. And even when they went into the Soviet Union in June of 41. And in the epilogue of the book, we have a great kind of uh, that I, a friend of mine actually pointed out to me in a book. He had read uh, D-Day from the German perspective. So, again, going back to that June 1940 memo, here we have D-Day in the book. And the German soldier saying, we saw the Allies come on bo- on shore with all mechanized, and that included all the Jeeps. And we're still using horses and have veterinarians we knew we were facing an incredibly powerful opponent. And that really stands as a testimony to the incredible versatility and, and uh, greatness of the Jeep that even the Germans took one look at that and said, you know, we're, we're in big trouble. So that's exactly correct that the Jeep really put the allies into another, another level in terms of mechanization that I, I don't even think the Germans were able to get to.
1: And, you know, so when they, when they got this Bantam, like you said, they're they're already bankrupt. They get this contract. How difficult was it for them to actually produce what they said they were going to?
4: They still had some production capacity. So they hand built the first one called, uh, I think it's a Bantam number one. And then that was accepted by the army. They were able to build their, build their, the next uh, 69 per that contract. And then through a whole bunch of other um, stuff that went on in the fall of 1940, which is documented in the book, each manufacturer, uh, Bantam, Willis and Ford were able to, uh, were given contracts for 1,500 of their models. And Bantam was actually able to build their 1,500. Uh, they only ended up building twenty six seventy three, two 2,673 because the contract in 1941, which was going to be a winner take all for 16,000 uh, was awarded to Willis and after that awarding there was a whole bunch of changes to the the vehicle as it continued to evolve but in, between this August of 1941 and November of 1941. And so the Willis M A, which was their second model, was so changed by the, and throughout 1941. That's why they named it the Willis M B, uh, and that's the one that ended up being for the war. So um, Bantam was able to build the ones that they uh, they were contracted to do, but they were not um, destined to be the ones uh, to build the vehicles for the war.
1: Now, now the uh, the was there any differences between what Bantam ford and Willys was uh producing or were they all exactly the same To go, going off the same blueprint
4: uh in essence they were uh because they were using the army specifications but each kind of put their own um uh what's the word stamp on their their vehicle for example ford was the one the first to come out with the the flat front end uh, the BRC, and you can see that on the cover of the book, and the Willis Quad, they had rounded hoods to start. But the big difference, and this is documented in the book, is Willis decided to use, for cost reasons, an engine they already had in production called the Go Devil engine. And I was able to geek out. They had in the where I was able to find in the research a lot of detail on how they got that engine to where it needed to be. And that engine was in the quad, the MA and the MB. So that that Go Devil engine uh, was in all the Jeep vehicles. And the key there was, it was uh, Bantam and Ford went with 40 horsepower engines because of trying to meet the weight. And Willis said, we're gonna have to go with this heavier engine because we can't you know, either buy another engine or, or develop another engine that would help us meet the weight. But the Go Devil, when they're able to meet weight, that ha- that was 60 horsepower. So that gave them a nice advantage over the other two in the testing in 41. And Delmar Ruse, who was the head of the uh, uh, building the Jeep for Willis, he said, we made that decision because I learned from building vehicles that you can never never have enough too much power. And so that that was a huge difference between the two was the more powerful engine that Willis was able to put in uh, than uh, Bantam or Ford did. They may have put in a more powerful engine if they hadn't been so constrained by the weight, but Willis got it done with the go devil. And that, that's a great story that we document in the book.
1: Yeah, and uh, you, know, you said they had an original production run of 16,000. Um, that was
0: that was
4: the contract in July of 41. Uh, what How it went, evolved is in this kind of, even in 1940, I read the documents. You can feel it in the documents. They really didn't have an understanding of the magnitude of the war they were about to get into in a year and a half. And so in, in July 1940, they're like, you know what? We'll get 70 of these. <laughs> 70. Okay, <laughs> that, That's not even a drop in the bucket. That's an insult to the drop. Okay. And so then in the fall, after they the, the Bantam came in, uh, the BRC, and it was so universally loved, they, were, they didn't really have a plan of where they're going to go next so they're kind of like well maybe we'll get 500 more and they go out with that and basically they're going to get them for bantam and then willis and ford both said you know hey we want in on this and so <laughs> through a whole bunch of things that happened in the fall of 1940 they went from uh 500 they said you know what let's everybody get 1500 eh, you know we'll get 4500 of these now <laughs> and so that's what I, that's how that happened and then as, you know, 41 moved on and, and, and the, the magnitude of the conflict, think about this. In July 1940, they're thinking 70. In July 1941, they're thinking we need at least 16,000. <laughs> and then they eventually ended up building over between Willis and Ford, 600,000 for the war. But going from 70 in a year to you're going to need at least 16,000 of these, that was a huge expansion of their thinking in terms of the magnitude of the cost and the numbers of what they were going to need, uh, not only Jeeps, obviously, but pretty much everything.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing how, how many they produced. I mean, you're talking 600,000 by the end of World War II because, obviously, all the Allies were using them, not only the American Army, but our British Allies, and uh, <clears throat> we gave a, a ton of those to the Soviets, who, who I, I remember reading something from the Soviet, uh, oh, um, Marshal Zhukov, who was the, you know, the top Russian general, he said that without American trucks and the Jeeps, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, go through Germany as quickly as they did in the end of the war. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at
0: BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet.
3: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
4: Yeah, it definitely helped them on, on their mobility. And I mean, again, it's a testimony to the genius and the DNA that's in the three of these vehicles that they created a vehicle that could work in every theater of a world war from sub-zero temperatures, temperatures, excuse me, to the tropics. And that's what it did. And it's still that vers- versatile today. Now yeah, it goes anywhere, and that's that's the beauty of the Jeep.
1: Yeah, and uh, it it lasted a long time. I mean, uh, I know I'm dating myself, but when I went into the military, we still had jeeps, and it wasn't until later, um, I want to say, late 1980s, when you know the Humvees finally started to replace them. But you're talking about a lifespan of 45 years, and that's that's amazing because they, jeeps will go just about anywhere. And the one thing about them is because they were light, you know, as you mentioned the weight, 1,273 pounds, <laughs> you know, if they get stuck, I mean, a couple of uh, GIs could lift it up, you know, get it out of the, where if, if it did get, but those things went just about anywhere. They had four wheel drive. I mean, everything about them was simple and it worked and it's amazing. And they, they had so many different, uh, ways of using it it wasn't just a troop carrier i mean you could mount a machine gun on them we had gun jeeps back when i was in we mounted a pintle in the back and you could put an m60 machine gun on there which it wasn't fun being a machine gunner i can tell you that because (laughs) you get tossed all over the place but it, it was uh it was a tremendous piece of equipment and this is uh it's amazing isn't it what what happened in 18 hours
4: Yeah, well, and then building the first one in 49 days and delivering it with a half an hour to spare, but going to your weight story about how a couple people could pick it up, you say, well, Paul, how did they decide after the Bantam came in and they were testing it and it looked a little overweight that, you know, we'll accept it at the weight that it is. So here's how that happened, Steve. So they're out testing it one day and these generals show up and the generals decide, as generals can do, we want to go out in this thing. So they hop in. It's a cavalry general and an infantry general, I think, and a driver, and they get stuck, and and then they then they start asking uh, the Bantam reps, um, you know, how much is this weigh? And and Carl Probst, uh, who we've mentioned earlier, kind of starts hemming and hawing and this and that. And Charles Payne was going to try to say, you know, this is really close to you know thirteen hundred pounds. So the the, the cavalry general says, you know what? If I can raise this up with the infantry general, and we can pick the backside up, it's good to go. So they get out of the jeep, go to the back, lift up the back, the two of them, and they go, "Yep, yeah, we'll accept this at this weight." Sounds good. That's <laughs> like, yeah, amazing. Another one of those things to put in the story. It's like the whole thing's riding on these two generals deciding if this thing can make weight. Then they didn't even weigh it. If I can, so going right to your point of. Right there at the beginning, it was like two people can lift this thing up, get this up from being unstuck. Uh, we're good to go. And there was many years later, uh, the same dynamic was playing out.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, the, the Jeep, and it still lives today. Like I said, I mean, uh, of course, the one that I have in my, my driveway is my wife's vehicle. But it's probably not very close to the original design, but it's still a Jeep. It still looks like a Jeep, doesn't it?
4: Right. What I always say, and I see all the Jeeps on the road and having, you know, lived this story for 20 years and done the research and seen what went into the first three, that the grit, determination, the genius of the design, the teams that built these first three Jeeps uh, still lives on. Their spirit is still in this 80 years later. You know, Bantam, Willis, and Ford. Uh, of what they did to, you know, create this iconic vehicle and the timeframes they did and, you know, coming from nothing. So while they may not look the same and, you know, exactly the same, the spirit is still there. And then and, and some of what they built into it that this is going to go anywhere.
1: Now, And during the research to this, I know you you said you went through the archives. Did you reach out to Jeep at all for any of their historical stuff?
4: Um, not really. Um they're hard to reach and um it's it's also I don't think they would wanna be saying they're promoting one book or the other. And mm-hmm. most of the information that I, I needed uh was in this and during the war, their Willis Overland started to say that they created the first Jeep. And the Federal Trade Commission took exception to that. So they started actually a trial to find out, you know, how the Jeep actually came about in 1940. And so they deposed all the principal players from Bannum, Willis, and Ford uh, for this trial. And I found the trial in the archives, and I've copied about 4,000 pages of testimony and so as an historian, you know, from my my MA in history degree, oral history uh, can be problematic for two things. One, especially if the people are remembering it long time afterwards. And two, people may slightly embellish their role. <laughs> but this was an extremely unique thing in history where they were deposing all these people only a few years after all the events had happened. So it was still relatively fresh in their minds. And they were doing it in a court case where they were being sworn in. So you pretty much want to tell the truth as you know it, because you're under the penalty of perjury. So that's where a a lot. And so I I realized as I was reading this, that we can write both these books, allowing the people who were there to tell their story because they're told their story. What I added was, you know, hopefully some narrative and, 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 uh, you know, connection between the stories they told and also the, trial when they testified it wasn't organized so I was able to organize it in order of you know how things happened. Um, just give you another example uh, there's this famous drawing uh, that was out on the web it's been out there for years uh, about this is the first drawing that was ever done uh, of a jeep type vehicle and they'd say no one's ever going to really know where this happened or where this came about and I'm reading in the archives, and I'm reading Frank Fenn, and he says, well, they came to the, uh, came to the um, B- Butler, June uh, 19th and 20, 1940, and he describes in great detail what happened on both days. And he says, at the end of the day, on June 19th, Mr. Brown, uh, uh, Mr. Beasley and Mr. Brown made a sketch which incorporated their ideas of what this car should likely be like and look like. And it's that sketch so i call it the beasley brown drawing but for the first time in our books in 214 where that sketch came about when it was drawn who drew it and why uh was found out and that was sitting in the archives in frank fenn's testimony buried for decades and i guess no one had found it so that was really really something and they had actually a copy of that drawing right in the court case so i'm holding an actual copy of the original drawing and actually, finding out exactly when that famous document—the first document that was a drawing of a Jeep-type vehicle—how it came about, when it came about, and who did it—that's great. That was just, again, very humbling, and I'm gr- I'm grateful I have a chance to explain that to people that like Jeep history.
1: Well, we are, you're listening to Soft Rep Radio. We we have Paul Bruno, the author of a really detailed and must-read book. If you're a military historian you're going to really want to see this. And the name of the book is The Original Jeeps, The Race to Build America's First Jeeps. And you can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. But, Paul, now the next question I have, because I've heard so many different stories on this, where did the, the, the name Jeep actually come from? Well, that's
4: yet another one of those good questions. And we try to answer it in the book as best we can in the epilogue. After reading through the trial um, transcript and also their summary of the case that they did, and we included this verbiage right from the court case and the epilogue, that basically, even then in 44, 45, they couldn't really, there was conflict to how the Jeep name got put onto the vehicles because they were really officially known as uh, quarter ton four by four lights. And mm-hmm. when they first came in, the bird the the, uh, the personnel there would call them like the Bantam or the Willis or the Ford. And so there's, they really couldn't figure out exactly when the Jeep name got onto the, the the quarter tons exclusively. It happened somewhere between the fall of 1940 after the Bantam was delivered in early 1941. But we did find out and we put it in the book that the name Jeep after World War I could was applied many times by military personnel you know, to new vehicles that would come in. And so what I think happened, and it's just my supposition, is they just started calling the quarter tons Jeeps because that's kind of what they did. And then over that period of time I mentioned, it just all of a sudden became singularly attached to the quarter ton vehicles and they were just known as Jeep. And after that, nothing else was known as Jeeps, just the quarter tons. So that's my best guess. I figure if the court case couldn't quite figure out, it really isn't from GP, general purpose, because Ford did not come out with the general purpose to the spring of 41. And they were already calling these things Jeeps, even as of um, you know December of 1940. And the Eugene, Eugene Jeep theory, which isn't a bad theory, um, again, um, the fact it, it's really hard to prove that uh, one guy testified that that's exactly how he named it, but there was conflicts from what he testified to what other people testified. So that's my best guess. It evolved from, they called things Jeeps. They brought these vehicles in, they were revolutionary, new. nothing, no one had ever seen anything like them. And the Jeep name just stuck to it. And Uh, You know, to use an overused cliche, the rest, as they say, is history.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, then, uh, you know, during the the war years, you got six million guys coming in, uniform to to serve in World War II or probably maybe even more than that. I mean, you have millions of, you know, GIs, Marines, sailors, whatever you want to call them. And, uh, you know, once they hear that term, of course, now it's it's being repeated millions of times. So that, that name was going to stick. Uh, I was always wondering about that because I had heard the GP story as well, you know, a long time ago. And I even asked my dad who served in World War II about that. And he was like, I don't know. When I came in, he, he entered the Army in 1940. And he was like, by the time I saw the first Jeep uh, in 41, which he was talking about, because they, they took them from Camp Edwards, Mass, all the way down to Fort Benning and uh in a a battalion convoy and he's like we already were calling them jeeps i don't know how it got the name so it's it's really interesting but i heard that the like um the civilian term that we use like cj5 cj7 for the civilians uh vehicles that came from willis right
4: yes uh after the war willis was the one that decided to keep uh Using the Jeeps and try to make them into a civilian vehicle. But I want to go back to your dad for a second, if it's okay. Sure. On our Facebook page, the original Jeeps, one of the things we're doing is we're sharing people's family stories of their anyone in their family that served in World War II. Um, a number of my uncles served uh, in World War II, and one of my aunts served. And so the uncle that served in the Air Force. Over in Italy on B-24s, we're sharing some of his stories and also of his wife, who was my Aunt Marge. Um, She was in the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. And so anyone that wants to share a story of their family service, if you have any from your dad, Steve, if you go out to our Facebook page, The Original Jeep, and want to post it, with a photograph. We already have some posts from my aunt and uncle kind of as examples of what we're, what we're doing. And we're just trying to honor the greatest generation there again in a different way with our book by, you know, hopefully people will share their family stories. So it was kind of a good ch- good time to mention that and uh, honor your dad also at the same time.
1: Oh, that, that'd that be awesome. In fact, um, yeah, my, my my dad always talked about that long convoy, you know, because he said there wasn't you know, 95 back then, uh, you know, it was going through small towns all the way. And then you have a big, long convoy with deuce and a half jeeps and motorcycles. And he said, and I made the mistake because they were short motorcycle riders, On you know, for, you know, uh, the, for the convoy. I told him, well, I owned a Harley in the c- civilian world. And he was like halfway down. I became a Harley rider until we all got down to, you know, to the Georgia. <laughs> And he said, and that wasn't fun. You know, and I can't imagine trying to be an outrider in in the old days. Today it would be easy going down 95, but not back then.
4: No. And um, that is exactly the type of story we're looking for. And that's even better. It doesn't have to be about Jeeps. Would that be about Jeeps? So you know, I'm willing to beg if you would go out and actually feel, consider uh, you know, sharing that story Steve of your dad in the convoy with the Jeeps. Could get ugly if I beg too hard. So, I'll just I'll just uh, you know, ask politely and if you give that some thought and you check out our Facebook page, The Original Jeeps, that's exactly yep. the kind of stories we're looking for. Great stuff.
1: Yeah, I cuz my dad ended up in armor and uh uh I have some pictures of him around Jeeps because they in, in armor units, they used them for reconnaissance and, uh, you know, for the headquarters elements always had Jeeps and they, they used to tow ammunition trailers with them and, uh, the half tons.
4: Yeah. They could do anything with a Jeep when they really wanted to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, Hey, uh, no, Paul, I, w- I want to thank you, man. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. I mean, th- the history involved with this is, uh, are there any more stories about the book that you want to share with our listeners? Because we still have a couple of minutes, if you want to.
4: Yeah, I'm going to share one more, but let me get a couple of shameless, blatant plugs in while I'm here. Because, sure you know, That's what I do. But for podcast listeners, such as your listeners, one of the things we're doing, and this is just for people that listen to podcasts or that type of uh, media, at the same price you can get the book at Amazon, twenty dollars. If you go to the website www dispatchermagazine.com, dispatchermagazine.com slash books. You can order an autograph copy for $20 there. So I just want to make sure your listeners hear that dispatchermagazine.com slash books, autograph copy by Paul Bruno, which makes a great Christmas present. And what more could someone ask for than an autograph copy book by Paul Bruno? Actually a lot, but that's the best I can offer. <laughs> so the other, well there the other you go
1: one, uh, i know it's going to be under my tree this year
4: well hey if i see you out there and you go to dispatchermagazinecom slash books and be glad to give you an autograph uh, sign an autograph copy and ship it to you the other is i just want to mention our website it's called originaljeeps.com originaljeeps.com and on there we have a contact form So you can contact us if you'd like. And there's a lot of more really cool information about all three of the original Jeeps out on that website. So feel free to check that out. The last story I'll talk about, and there's just plenty more, is um, we're talking about how the Army came up with the the specs. So they really great detail this that I found in the trial case, how they did a chalk mark on the floor, a wooden mock-up. And uh, so then they did, uh, they put together a little bit of a, A vehicle. I don't know if it was wood or however they did it. And they put a Bantam 20 horsepower engine in it. Right. And so this is at Camp Holover. So they tried to drive it up the hill. (laughs) And it makes it halfway up the hill. And Colonel Oseth was there, actually, I believe in the vehicle, the infantry gentleman we've mentioned earlier. And he basically says, we're done. This isn't going to work. It's not enough. And Charles Payne is standing right there and he comes running up, or he was there and he comes running up and goes, Oh, don't worry about that, that it doesn't have enough horsepower. We're not going to use the Bantam engine. We already got a different uh, engine in mind. And OSES said, Well, Charles Payne kept the project from being shipwrecked on that one right there. <laughs> it's like <laughs> right on the edge. We're not going to even do this. And Charles Payne showed, Oh, don't worry. We got, you know, yeah, it's going to make 1,273 pounds. We got a more powerful engine. We're great thumbs up (laughs) so just another one of those shook my head moments saying wow this how close it came in that one moment to maybe never even having a jeep as it was and and they actually did get the continental engine and uh you know 40 horsepower and away they went so that's just another nice story on you know how they were developing the specs and um that's great i love that detail geeking out on that where you see come alive you know from just this concept into something that uh, they could build a vehicle from.
1: Oh, that's great. And, you know, it's some great history and the Jeep has served our military. It served our military for, like I said, about 45 years, maybe even more. I know we started replacing them in the mid mid to late eighties, but I mean, it had a great shelf life for the military and everyone who served in that era from World War II, right up until like the first desert storm. I mean, uh, Everybody had stories about Jeeps and stuff that happened. It was a great tool. It was a great piece of equipment. It always kind of served well. And you could beat the heck out of them and they just keep coming back for more. So uh you know, we, we appreciate your time today, Paul. And we want to thank you once again for joining us. And it was a lot of fun. Uh we wanna thank our listeners for hanging in there. And if you want to get soft rep on your phone. Download our free mobile app and get some easy access to articles, podcasts, gear reviews, all perfectly formatted to your own individual device. Please subscribe to softrep.com to get access to all our library of eBooks and to our exclusive team room forums and content available on all Apple and Android devices. Paul, what can I say? Thanks again, man. This has been a lot of fun for us. We really appreciate your time and this is a awesome book for those military historian types,
4: yeah, I really thank you for having me and but at, even military historians, we've tried to make the story of the original Jeeps accessible to just about anybody because it's just a it's just a great story of something people see every day. so um I'm really grateful that you had me and um, yeah it's it's a lot of fun to talk about. I can tell you that
1: now you got anything else in the fire? Are you're researching anything new?
4: Uh, Not at the moment. I have some, (laughs) I'm laughing because I have some concepts. Sounds like the military about (laughs) May, June, 1940, right. Um, Of where I might go next, but nothing concrete.
1: Okay. Well, uh, thanks once again. And folks, thanks for listening to soft rep radio. We appreciate all your, uh, you know, loyalty and listening and as well as your reading all of our great articles. So uh, for myself, Steve Ballastory, Paul Bruno, all of us here at softrep.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back real soon.
3: You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury.